it's been a while since we had that fun little introduction video. I like to think it's like my, you know, like professional wrestlers have that song. Is there like, that's what this is for me, right? So yeah, and just in case you didn't know what that was, like that's, if you have kiddos in three uh, grades, three, third through fifth, they can go to beliefs now during this time. So if you're new and you're just like, that was strange and why did that happen? That's what that is. So I want to welcome you all and just thank you for being here at Stonebridge Church. My name is Joey. I'm the associate pastor here. And I just, I'm, I'm humbled and honored to be able to be here and to start and wrestle through the new series that we're starting today. We're going to be digging into the book of Habakkuk. And, you know, you got to say it with a little bit of phlegm, Habakkuk. Like that's how you properly say it. We've been wrestling with that over the past week as well, how to properly say it. Um, you'll probably want to start trying to find that book right now, as it's not one of the easiest books to find. Um, for those of you who have print Bibles, my best suggestion is go to your table of contents and find the page number, and that'll help you from there. If you have a digital, head towards the New Testament. When you get to Matthew, just go a few books back. It's something we call the, uh, the uh, minor prophets. So, that's where you'll find that one. Um, sorry, I'm having some struggles up here, which is not normal for me. But um, yeah, yeah. There it is. Love the cackle from my wife, right? Um, I, I don't want to start. I, we were talking about it this past week, and I was like, you know, I, I'm really excited about starting this series and and all of this, and I was like, I don't know if you want to say that you're excited to start a series like this. Um, it's not something that should excite me. The topics and the themes that we're going to be digging into are not necessarily things that should excite me to talk about. Um, as you can see from the title, we're going to be wrestling with honest questions for God. And each week, we're going to encounter another tough question that Habakkuk throws at God. Habakkuk is wrestling with, is God good in the midst of all of this just hell around us? And so we're going to be digging into that and looking at it in our own lives. Now, I say, though, that I, I am excited because even though we're going to be tough, covering tough topics and dealing with that in connection groups and in Bible studies— I'm excited that we are a church that doesn't shy away from those topics, that we confront them head on. That's what excites me is it's not like we're just going to brush this under the rug and just pretend like everything's okay and just put on your happy face and come to church. That's not who we are. And that's what excites me when we dig into these tough questions each week. So today we're going to be talking about, God, where are you when I need you? And this is Habakkuk's kind of first question for God, as we start it, um, really the heart of this series is trying to develop a theology of suffering. But why? Why now? In the midst of everything going on here at Stonebridge, why do we need a theology of suffering, right? Like everything is going good here. We're growing. We've got lots of kids. The, we've got a building campaign that's going well. We're not suffering. Things are good here, Right? If you truly believe that, I pray that through this series, God can open your eyes to what is going on in this church and in the community around us. Just in this church, I just sat down and just jotted down a few things that just instantly hit my head 
on my mind as I was thinking through it. Just in this church alone, I can think of parental struggles, you know, kids and parents not getting along, marital struggles, infertility, miscarriages, divorce, sickness, death, chronic pain, disabilities, depression, anxiety, addictions, anger, and lost jobs. Just to name a few. That's what's going on in our church. And that is representative of the community around us and the world around us. People in this church are hurting. And that's okay. It's okay that people are hurting here within this body. It's okay that they're coming here and hurting. I know as cheesy as this may sound, I once heard a quote and I've loved it and I, and I repeat it and I say it often, but it's that a church should be a hospital for the broken, not a museum for good people. That is not the purpose of this church. We're not just coming here and putting on our happy face and pretending like everything is okay. We are broken. I am broken. That is who we are. And that is why I'm excited to talk about these questions and try and figure out how to wrestle with the tough questions of God. I was listening to a sermon from Matt Chandler this past week in preparation for And if you don't know who Matt Chandler is... um, do some research on him. If you want to know of a pastor who dealt with just some incredible suffering in his life and yet stayed focused on God, he, he is it. He's a pastor down in the Texas area. Um, and so he was preaching on this theology, this idea of a theology of suffering. And he pointed to this passage in Matthew 8 or Matthew 7, the passage about the two men who built their houses. Right? And one built his house on the sand and the other one built his house on the rock and a lot of the little kids know a song. I didn't grow up in church, so I don't know the song very well. So you can be thankful. I'm not going to sing it for you. But there's this, you know, man who built his house in the sand and the man who built his house in the rock. And this passage has been preached on and sang about for years as this key passage that we need to be building our lives on the rock of Jesus Christ in order to survive the storms in our lives. That is true. But what Chandler pointed out to me that I didn't always catch is that just because the man built his house on the rock, it did not exempt him from the storms in his life. The storm hit both houses. It doesn't say the man built his house on the rock and the storm magically went around it and just wiped out the guy on the sand. No, the storm hit both houses. So as we dig into this and we start to develop a theology of suffering, we need to be reminded... That being a Christian does not mean that life will be perfect. In fact, it may mean that more struggles will come your way after becoming a believer. So with that, let's dive into Habakkuk and read the first 11 verses to see our first question and answer from God. So Habakkuk chapter 1, starting at verse 1. It says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. The Lord answers. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you you would not believe if I told you. 
For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and nasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sands. All at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So we see this question and answer between Habakkuk and God. And before we dig into the actual verses, and actually just digging into the first verse here, we need to do a little bit of context work. So it says that this is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So first off, we need to understand where this is contextually and what, how that affects what's going on in the world as we read it. So Habakkuk is from a section of the Old Testament that we refer to as the minor prophets. But when we say minor, we don't mean less important, as many of the minor prophets have deep theological truths in them. The minor prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and they're named that basically just because they're shorter. It's really just like long prophets and short prophets, but they say major prophets and minor prophets, but they're just shorter books. But that doesn't mean that they don't have incredible truths in them. The last 12 books of the Old Testament are these, and they deal with either Israel, Judah, or the surrounding countries, and the, and the idolatry and immorality and punishment that's going to come to all of these countries because of what's going on. What we mean when we say minor, like I said, is shorter. Habakkuk is focused on the country of Judah. That's who he's speaking on behalf of. And Judah was the southern kingdom of Israel. Now Habakkuk is unique even amongst all the other prophets and unique even in our Bible because it's not a lot of commentary in the Bible is like this, a back and forth between a prophet and God. Habakkuk is speaking directly to God on behalf of Judah. That doesn't happen often in our Bibles. And then God answers him. Habakkuk was a prophet, as it says, and he lived during the time of Jeremiah. Now, that just helps us historically where this is at. A lot of these Old Testament books, even though they go, they look like they go in order, they don't. A lot of there's overlapping in here. Old or major prophets and minor prophets overlap, and they overlap with historical books. There's just a lot of overlapping in there. The book isn't written chronologically. It's written by sections, or it's put together by sections, I mean. So this is about 640 to 615 B.C. And that's important because it helps us to know that Habakkuk is writing after the death of King Josiah. Josiah was the child king that kind of pops up in the historical books as this glimmer of hope. So before Josiah becomes a king, at the age of 12, I look at Deacon and I say, age 12, he becomes king of an entire nation, right? Like that's, any one of the 12-year-olds like, nope, not my kids. Josiah did. He becomes king of the entire nation. And at the time, Israel and Judah are a mess. 
idolatry, immorality. They had completely forgotten about the law of Moses. And this child finds the law, reads it, and realizes this is what God wants for them. So this child king reinstitutes the law, restructures all of Israel or Judah, starts tearing down the idols, doing away with immorality, and he becomes one of the greatest kings in all of Israel's history. This is one of the best times in their history. But unfortunately, Josiah dies in battle about the age of 40, and the country immediately goes right back into injustice, idolatry, and immorality. It just goes right back. And this is where Habakkuk is writing from, after the death. And after he sees, we were doing good for a little while, and all of a sudden, we're right back in the mess. The name Habakkuk, it means embraced. Now, again, as we develop a theology of suffering, this word embraced is important. Even when life is spiraling out of control, God promises that he will not leave us nor forsake us. He is with us in the hills and the valleys of life. He is embracing us. Even when it feels like no one else is there, God is there for us. And he was there for Habakkuk. Verse 1, it says again that this is an oracle. The word oracle means burden, and that is what Habakkuk feels. The book of Habakkuk is the story of his personal struggle, his journey to trying to believe that God is good when there is so much evil, tragedy, and horrificness in the world around him. Maybe some of you have felt that way as well. You look around at the world that we live in, and you feel burdened. You question, how can a good God allow whatever it is that you are facing? And these first words that Habakkuk utters, you can relate to them. Habakkuk is a book that shows us that it is okay to ask tough questions of God. God welcomes our questions and wants to meet us there. So Habakkuk's first question, how long? How long, Lord? And really, that whole first four verses really has the question with it. Why do you tolerate evil, God? So first off, he says, how long? His question indicates that this has been going on for a long time. And it is still continuing. It was believed that King Solomon died about the time of 930 BC. So from there, and Solomon was one of the last great kings of Israel before the country split. And they started, and even that is questionable towards the end of Solomon's life. But he's one of the last great kings. So for almost 300 years, the country is just getting worse and worse and worse. There's been some good kings like Josiah. There have been some bad kings, and there have been some horrific kings in those 300 years. How long will you let this country, our country, the country that is supposed to be worshiping you, God, how long will you let this go on? How many of us have asked this question, though? How long will my dad's cancer last? How long will I remain childless? How long must I suffer through the hopelessness of my depression? How long, Lord? In the bottom of the pit, it is hard to see our way out. And it feels like there's no one there to help us. 
who feel alone and afraid. And we're afraid of just what be maybe next, right? Like I've gotten this news, and I've gotten this news, and I feel this. How long, Lord? That's possibly what Habakkuk is feeling here. He's feeling distant from God. He's feeling alone in his pursuit of holiness. He's looking around at the country, and he sees like he's the only one that's following God. And he's afraid of what could happen next to the country that he loves. Then he issues the second part of his first question. He says, why do you allow injustice, God? Now, I've talked about the fact that Habakkuk lives in a wicked, unjust time. But, but just how wicked, right? Is it really that bad? Can it be any worse than what we've got going on right now in the world around us? Well, the Israelites had started worshiping false gods such as Ashtaroth and Baal. They were the gods of sex and immorality. And the worship of these false gods focused on cult prostitution, child sacrifices, and ritualistic sex. That's what their country was going through right now. And the religious leaders at the time were okaying it. They were like, yeah, let's do, this is great. We need to be worshiping this God and this God and this God. And whatever God we can find, let's add it to so we can have, make sure that we're worshiping a God. It's okay. They were some of the worst at this. The, the wicked had paralyzed the law so that justice couldn't be found even if they wanted to. Habakkuk was suffering for justice because his views were against those of the society he lived in. Again, this is very similar to our world. We live in a, we live in a broken world. No matter what side you fall on politically or whatever it may be, right? Whatever views you take on whatever topic we're talking about, both sides are sinful, broken people. Both sides. And we shouldn't be surprised when humans sin. That's what humans do. Until Jesus returns, we are sinners. No matter what our views are. That is the heart. And we can, we can find good and we can run to Jesus and we can repent of our sins and we can be forgiven. But the reality is every human is a sinful person and sin has marked their thoughts, their feelings, their actions. So how do we respond when we live in a world that is surrounded by brokenness and sin? When something bad has happened in your life, how do you respond? Do you start to ask questions like, God, how could you let this happen? I've been going to church. I've been trying to do things right. God, how can you let this happen? See, the devil wants you to believe that the bad stuff in this world, that it's God's fault. That he allowed it. That, that God doesn't care. That he's mad at you. That you've done something wrong. That you're, he's punishing you for some sort of sin in your life. Or maybe that he's just not even paying attention, right? God's just this aloof, distant being that doesn't really care that much about you. The devil knows that if you're mad at God, he's got you separated from your help and your lifeline. And that's exactly where he wants you. God is only good. I know some of us say things like, you know, God is good all the time and all the time God is good. Well, it's not just that. It's, it's that he's only good. His mercy endures forever. He doesn't change back and forth from good to bad. You know, like I think of myself, like I, there are days where I can do good things and there are days where I screw up big time. 
I go back and forth between good and bad on the given day. God does not. He is only good. You can trust him because he has our best interest at heart. And just like Habakkuk, we can bring our complaints before him knowing that he is listening. Now, unlike most of us when we pray, God audibly answers Habakkuk's questions. He speaks to him. And we see God's answer to Habakkuk's questions in verses 5 through 11. Now, to say that this is not the answer that Habakkuk wanted is a bit of an understatement. God says, you're right. I do see what the Israelites are doing. And don't worry. I'm going to punish them. I'm going to do something that you won't believe. I'm going to punish the Israelites with the Chaldeans. And this is, again, where we need to stop and ask the question, okay, so who are these Chaldean people? Well, depending on what translation you're reading out of, it may say it for you. Some translations use the word Babylonians. The Chaldeans were the Babylonians. Simply, the best way I can explain it for us is it's like saying Caucasian or American. That's all it is, is they were the, the ruling people group within Babylon. Babylon was a melting pot just like America is, and they were made up of a bunch of different types of people, and Chaldean were the, the ruling greatest populace in that country. So it's really just saying the Babylonians. Now this is absolutely devastating to Habakkuk. And we will look at his response to this answer. He questions something again and a bit, but just to give you a taste of Habakkuk's main complaint, his complaint will be that the Babylonians are so much worse than the Israelites. Right? Like, yeah, we're bad, but they're so much worse. Now, in my mind, as I was thinking through this, I was like, okay, how can I explain this idea of they're so much worse than us? I thought of the idea of college football. So, so I'm an Iowa fan. Matt's an ISU fan. Josh is a people pleaser, so he says he likes both. Like, just pick a side, bud, right? Literally, he walked in one day wearing like an ISU shirt and an Iowa hat. It's like, get out. Just, you're done. Like, so this next week is the big week, right? Like, Matt and I are going to be picking on each other and throwing jests at each other. And when Iowa wins next week, because we know they will, I will be sending snarky texts to Matt, and it'll be great. And we can sit here and say, like, yeah, it's bad. If we, I don't want to lose to him, and he doesn't want to lose to me, because he knows we're going to have to deal with each other for the rest of the year. But there's something so much worse than losing to each other. Losing to Nebraska. There is nothing worse than a Husker, right? That's just nothing. Like, that is like, if I lose to ISU and we lose to Nebraska, I'm done. Like, no more. I'm burning my flag. We're out. Like, I'm kidding. I love you, man. I sit right. So, this, this text here, though, does a really great job of explaining to us just how terrible the Babylonians are. It talks about just how wicked and fast and incredible they are. And next week, I'm sure we'll dig into more of just possibly how wicked the Babylonians were. If you want more understanding of how bad they are, 
Um, this past summer, we preached through Psalms, and there's a Psalm that I preached, uh, Psalm 137, and in it, I explained the wickedness of the Babylonians. Or you can just go read the book of Daniel and see what life was like in Babylon after the exile to get a better grips of why Habakkuk would be so upset by these people being, being the ones that are used to punish Israel. The point is that Habakkuk is not pleased. Which brings us to the question, how do we respond when God's answer is not what we want? When God doesn't give us the job that we feel is just perfect for us. When God doesn't save your marriage. When your child refuses to accept Jesus and goes off to college and gets involved into whatever it may be. How do you respond when God's answer is not what you want? I'm going to run to the end of Habakkuk. But it's only so that it can help us frame this entire series. Like this, this verse in Habakkuk 3.18, it just helps us to frame the entire idea and this entire theology of suffering and where Habakkuk will get to. So Habakkuk 3.18, it says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the Lord of my salvation. So... That's incredible that he can say that. And we're going to explain over the next five weeks how he can get to saying that. He doesn't get to it without some just immense wrestling with God over the next few chapters. Um, months ago, like when Josh first came, I said, you know, when we start Habakkuk, we need to sing the song Weep With Me by Ren Collective. And I think it just helps us to just get in that mindset of who God is. And I was just thinking of it purely on an idea of like suffering songs and suffering topics. As I was sitting here listening to them practice this morning and rehearse, I heard this verse and it just instantly reminded me of this passage. So in the song, they say, yet I will praise you, yet I will sing of your name. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the Lord of my salvation. It's is almost eerie. It's, it's God. That's how God works, right? But it's like, it's just incredible how these things connect so well. What would it take for you to say that? When the cancer test comes back positive, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. When your spouse files for divorce, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord, when the stock market crashes right before your retirement and you lose everything, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. That's not something easy, and I'm not just trying to be like, oh, just you just gotta have more faith and love God. No, like we have to get some wrestling, and we have to have a theology of suffering in place for when the storms come. We have to be built on the rock when the storms come. God doesn't give Habakkuk the answer he wants, but God is present. And as we dig into Habakkuk and suffering over the next five weeks, we need to understand that as we talk to people who are hurting, we don't need all the answers. We just don't. We feel like we have to at times. And that's then what scares us away from entering into conversations with people who we know are hurting. It's like, I don't know what to say to them. 
But we as the ones who may be hurting also need to be willing to, to not get the answer from the person who's talking to us or even just from God. We may not get the answer that we're praying for. This is a book of lament. And we've talked a lot about lamenting this past summer. Lamentation and questioning are God's gift to the believer. God gifts us the ability to lament and to cry out in frustration when we don't understand and to question him, why? Why is it going on? But eventually we have to get to that verse in 318 in our lives. Yet I will rejoice in your name. So how can we help those who are suffering, including ourselves? Well, within the counseling world, there are many answers to this as you could possibly ask, right? On opposite sides of the pendulum, we see those who believe you just, you need to have more faith and you need to have a deeper prayer life and just read the Bible. Like when you're anxious, just read your Bible and you'll be okay. Like you just need to have more faith and just pray it away, that kind of idea. And on the other end of the spectrum, more of a secular idea is those who believe that the answer to our problems is just medicate, medicate, medicate. We just need to medicate and numb the brain so we don't think and we don't feel and just take it all away, right? So where does Stonebridge Church land on the pendulum? Or better stated, what is our theology of suffering? Our hope and our prayer is that we can land somewhere in the middle. It is right and okay to go to counselors and psychiatrists. God has gifted them in incredible ways to understand the human brain and to help us. And sometimes we just need people to talk to and just listen to us. And I will be the first to stand here and say, I have gone to counselors recently and at other points in my life since becoming a Christian. It is right and okay to go to counselors from time to time. Now, I'm going to encourage a Christian counselor, but maybe, there, maybe you can't find one. There are good secular counselors and psychiatrists out there. I also believe that some people just need to talk to their doctor about what is going on. Again, God has gifted non-Christians and Christians alike with common grace. The ability to develop medications that can be helpful for a season. I'm not saying numb it away and live on medications for the rest of your life, but at some point there may be just something you need to turn to. Something that's going on in your life that you just need to get a little bit of help. But that other side is vastly important and equally important and maybe more important, definitely more important. We don't just medicate and say, okay, it's good and I'm better and bye. No, that has to be coupled with the prayer and the scripture and God's people and the church. We need to be with each other in connection group, in Bible studies, being with other believers sharpening each other, praying for one another, reading the scripture and letting God speak into whatever suffering we're going through. This is where some people may say, well, what about, like, what about you, right? You're, you're a pastor. Pastors do counseling. Yes, you're absolutely right. We can do counseling. But I like to use the analogy of, of doctors when it comes to this idea of pastors and counseling. There are some pastors out there that have gotten degrees and taken many classes on counseling and psychology. 
Others, like myself, have gotten introductory-level courses. I use the analogy of the doctor. It's like when my leg hurts, I'm going to go to my general practitioner first. And he's going to tell me maybe it's this, do a little bit of exercise. But if it still keeps hurting, I have to go to an x-ray and I have to go to an MRI. And maybe somewhere down the road, I might need surgery. My general practitioner is not going to do surgery. Or he may not be a doctor anymore, right? But I'm also not going to say, you know, my leg hurts this morning. I'm going to go to the surgeon and tell him to just cut it off. Like that's, we don't start there either. So in the world of counseling, it's the same. Yes, come to a pastor, talk to a pastor, talk to a connection group leader, somebody who loves you and cares about you. But at some point, whatever you're struggling with may need a little bit of specialization. And we can help refer you to these other specialists down the road. Something else that I think is helpful as we walk this road is something called the Kubler-Ross grief cycle. And I didn't tell you, but we can pop that up real quick. So this is, this is a cycle that was developed by a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she was writing about death and dying. And she outlined the five normal stages that someone goes through while dealing with death and dying in the family. It's important to note that this cycle, it, even though it looks like it, it doesn't necessarily have to have a starting point or an ending point. No two people are grieving in the same way or at the same time. And you may also go back through the cycle at times. Right? When the two-year anniversary of your loved one passing comes around, it is normal to go back to anger or depression and just questioning. I also believe that this cycle is not restrictive to just dealing with death or dying. I believe that many of us go through this very same cycle while dealing with sin struggles in our life. I bring all this up because the absolutely amazing thing that I found this past week in the NIV application commentary is that this cycle is outlined right here in Habakkuk. So chapter 1, verse 2 isolation. You will not hear. You will not save. Habakkuk feels isolated. He, he's, where are you, God? They say you're good, but I don't see anything. I'm isolated. Then we see anger. Habakkuk 1, 3 through 4. He says, why? Why? Justice never goes forth. Justice is perverted. He's angry at the situation he sees around him. Then he goes into denial. Habakkuk 1 verse 12, he says, my holy one, we shall not die. No, God, this is not the way it should be. Verse 13, he slips into bargaining. He says, you are who are of pure eyes. You cannot look at wrong. God, you cannot allow this. God, think about this. Look at those people. You've got to have a better option, God. Then we see him slipping into depression at the start of or at the end of verse 13, he's saying, why, why again? And then into verse 14 and 15, he says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea who brings all of them up with a hook. He feels hopeless. He's like, we're just like fish. We're just floating along in the ocean waiting to be hooked out, pulled out with a net, chopped up and eaten. That's all we are. We're hopeless. And then finally, he finds himself in acceptance. And that's all of chapter 3. It's a, a song. But again, that verse that I shared, verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the Lord of my salvation. Even though he has not gotten the answers that he wants, he finds acceptance 
for the struggles. This is helpful for those of us who may be going through a season of suffering. But what about those of us who are walking alongside of them? The ministry of presence is a powerful thing. I don't mean presence like gifts. Presence like being with somebody. The book of Job is a story of a man who went through some of the worst suffering in probably all of the Bible. And he has some friends that come to him. And I like to jokingly say that Job's friends did a really great job until they opened their mouths. They came from a really far ways away. And they came and they just sat there with their friend. They saw, they heard what was happening to him. But they came and they sat and they saw all that had happened to their friend. And they just sat there for a couple of days. They did a really good job. And then most of the rest of the book is them sticking their foot in their mouths and blaming God or blaming Job or blaming his family. And they start talking. We often feel like we need to give someone a Bible verse to make them feel better in the midst of their pain. God works all things out for those who love him, right? God is, God is always good. He'll work it out. He's got your best interest in mind. Really, because my child is dying, how is that for God's good? Really? I have crippling anxiety for months now. How is that for God's good? Reality is, that verse is true. God does work all things out for his glory. But in the midst of the valley, when we feel feel so distant from God, that is probably not going to help us much. But someone being with us, and listening to us, and loving us through it, letting us be messy, and questioning, and that idea of being present is so helpful. And if you're going to point them to anything, point them to the cross. The fact that the biggest amount of injustice the world has ever seen, the most suffering that anyone has ever felt happened right there. And God did it for us. God willingly chose to send his son. And the son willingly said, I'll do it. I will come and I will die a horrific death on a cross so that these people could be redeemed. What does help? It helps just to be with people. Let them know that you're a safe place. We are joining someone on a hard journey instead of just simply giving them direction. Someone recently brought up this idea, and we were talking about this as connection group leaders, and they brought up the idea of like a grocery store with this idea of giving direction or or joining, right? And they say, you know, what, what feels better when you're in the grocery store and you're looking for sugar? And this person over here, usually some teenager, right? They're over there doing something. And they're like, hey, where's the sugar? It's in aisle 37, uh, about halfway down left-hand side. If you've gotten to the spices, you've gone too far. Which is what we normally get, right? Or, hey, where's the sugar? Oh, it's in aisle 37. Let me show you because it's kind of tricky to find. I, I get confused too. Let me go with you. What do we want to be? Let's be a church that is willing to join people on the difficult journey instead of just giving them directions and pointing them to the Bible. Let's join them in Scripture and wrestle through it and walk alongside them. It will be messy, but that is what Christ calls us to do. Let's pray.